gentlemen keep coming in and just grab your seats. Uh, if you need a lesson, hold up your hand and uh, I don't know if, yeah, uh, uh, Carol Way's got some lessons. Speaking of Carol Way, Carol and Danny um, help organize and put together our um, connection groups. And again, we'll repeat, as we said last week, if you're not in a connection group, it's a small fellowship group of family units. And you try to get together once a month or so. Um, uh, we try to keep it to around, I don't know, 10 or 12 uh, uh, adult units at least, maybe in each connection group. But it's a wonderful way to have a smaller, more intimate fellowship. If you're interested in that, see Carol, see Danny, uh, see Phil. Phil's decided... See, we, we, we've announced that each connection group's going to get uh, um, a, a night at the center court suite at the Houston Rockets um, for a game sometime during the Rocket season. So Phil's decided uh, uh, he's going to sign up for every connection group <coughs> and uh, uh, get it done that way. Um, those of you who were not here last Sunday uh, uh, missed uh, um, our class and uh, missed a specific part of it. Um, I was speaking, and um, uh, I, you know, I, I speak for a living. This is uh, uh, not in churches, but but uh, out in the world. And I've spoken all of my life. Uh, my mom says I didn't say anything till I was two years old, but since then I haven't shut up. Um, so I, I, you know, I generally hope that I, I'm careful with how I speak. But last week I made some reference to an attitude that wants to be Christian in the workplace, but then you tell your people, you know, now get your butt back to work. And I realized when I said that, that, you know, butt may be offensive to some people. It, it's not where I grew up, but I felt bad about it, and I apologized uh, to y'all. Um, and afterwards, I was just really dogged about it, really concerned. And I went to Lewis, or uh, as he likes to call himself, Lulu, and <laughs> I... Uh, um, I told him, you know, I said, this just really bothers me. I hate when I do something like that. And you just feel like you're, you know, I have a size 12 shoe and I hate putting it in my mouth. And, and he said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. No big deal. So I go to the Astros and watch us um, get swept. And uh, game three and game four, and I come home from game four, and it's around 12.15 in the morning, and I'm thinking I ought to go to sleep if I were saying I would, but, well, I'll check my emails. And uh, so I sign on to our work email address, and I have this email from Lewis. LL is Lulu. That's the way he signs his name. Um, Uh-oh. Uh, let's get this right now. This is too good to miss. A member of our Sunday school class was in Angleton this week and saw this on the marquee at First Baptist Church. Call me, we need to figure out some quick damage control. Do you know the pastor or anyone else at First Baptist Angleton? I'm concerned this will get back to Wade and the executive staff at CFBC. So I click on the attachment. <clears throat> Now, understand, it's 12.15 in the morning. Never occurs to me this could be a practical joke. All I'm thinking is, is, you know, if Merck can't beat me in the courtroom, they're going to try and take me down somewhere else. 
So I get on the internet and I start looking up the First Baptist Church of Angleton, Texas. And by the way, I can give you their entire history. I was, uh, I was looking at all of the, the pictures online from their barbecue picnic they had recently to see if I know any of the members. I went through the entire list of deacons to see if I knew any of them. And needless to say, I'm sitting here thinking, so who's the dirty rat in Sunday school that went out and ratted me? Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what to do. So I find the email address of the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Pearland. And I write the following. Pastor Bowman, by way of introduction, my name is Mark Lanier. I'm a Christian in Northwest Houston who makes a living as a lawyer. My real joy in life, other than my family, is the Sunday school class I teach each Sunday at church. I've taught for many years, spent a lot of time each week trying to do my best at sharing what I believe God would like me to share. Last Sunday, I was finishing my lesson on 1 Peter. The lesson is taped, and I'd be glad to share it with you, so you see I'm not a cussing heathen, as I would any others I've taught. I was trying to explain to class, many people take their faith, wear it on Sundays, set it aside when they go out of church into the world. I was contrasting keeping the faith versus a pretend faith in the process. I stated we should not be people who bark at employees or folks under us at work. I specifically said we're not to be those who bark at folks to get their butt back to work. After I said that, I paused in regret. I told the class, I wish I'd not used the word butt. Because, well, where I grew up, it was not an offensive term. It might be to others where they grew up. I apologized on the spot and told people I should have chosen a different way to express the attitude some people wrongly adopt while wearing a Christian faith. I am emphatic. I am a lawyer. I write long. And I have repeatedly taught that our language must be seasoned with grace. I'm not an advocate of any profanity. Don't use it, period, in my personal life, my work life, or my church life. This is not new to me. I've not used profane vocabulary, even joking around. I could give you a list of many in Angleton who've known and been with me in pressure situations, who've seen me upset, and who'll tell you I always try to speak not just with words befitting our faith, but with an attitude and manner befitting our faith. I came in tonight to an email indicating that someone in my class saw your church's sign. Attached to the email was a picture of your church sign reading, Beware, Attorney Mark Lanier uses profanity in God's house. By the way, this is the church immediately adjacent to the courthouse in Angleton, Texas. 2,000 members. Beware, Attorney Mark Lanier uses profanity in God's house. I actually looked at it carefully thinking it might be a prank. And if it is, ignore this email. <laughs> it is too late in the evening for me to call the guy who sent it to me. I don't name Lewis because I'm trying to protect him. Call the guy who sent it to me to see if it's authentic. I thought it might be a prank because one, it's not true. And two, no one I'm aware of from your church contacted me to discuss this or bring the charge against me personally like I would expect from a Christian brother. If it's real, I'm hurt. I consider my life as one in service to our master. Anything good I can do, by the power of his grace, I want to do it. I'm far from perfect in what I do, but it's the most serious matter to me. Would you please let me know why this sign is up, if indeed this is not a prank? I would like to know who's lodging this charge against me before a watching world without first coming to me. 
thank you for taking the time to read this. I have many friends in full-time ministry and I respect and admire what you do for God. I want to figure out what's prompted this and speak with whoever I need to. Please feel free to email me here at home or at work and call me on every number I own. <laughs> the next morning I get a message from Becky to call Lewis before I do anything else. I call Lewis. I said, man, I may have to resign from teaching. I feel really bad about this. And he said... You're, you're joking, right? And I said, no. I said, I emailed the pen. He says, no, no, you, this is like you pulling the next level of joke, isn't it? I said, no, what are you talking about? He said, it, it was a joke. <laughs> so here's the next email that went out. <laughs> Pastor Bowman. Whew, it was a prank after all. And the worst or the funniest part of it was it was one of our pastors that pulled the prank. <laughs> After class last Sunday, I was so concerned over using the word but that I went to one of our pastors who happens to be one of my dearest friends that should be in the past tense. <laughs> who happened to have been one of my dearest friends and told him my concern and frustration over using the word. Evidently, he thought I would call him immediately upon receiving the email of the bogus church sign. He no doubt picked your church because I recently won a big Vioxx case across the street from y'all in the Angleton Courthouse. He never dreamed I'd get the email at 12.15 and not call him, but send an immediate response to you. Oh well, he and I have both learned a lesson. Me, not to speak while on a double dose of Benadryl. Him, to know the limits of practical joking with me. I'm so sorry to have wasted your time with all this. Sometime I believe he and I should both come to Angleton to take you to lunch so you can learn we're fun-loving brothers and not freaks. <laughs> the funniest part is half of y'all go to him for counseling. Okay, so, <laughs> Pastor Bowman, Lewis, bless his heart, has called him now twice. <laughs> Pastor Bowman is out of town until Monday. So, when he gets home, is he going to have some fun emails to read? And uh, I will plug y'all in on what kind of response we get from him. I kept looking at it, I kept thinking, well, you know, if this was like a seven-member church, I'd think... They could be so freaky that this could be real, but 1,800 members, you know, you'd think that... And the guy's been there 10 years. I mean, someone must really hate my guts to try and do that. You know, I'm just... It was... <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. Lulu. I can't decide whether to get revenge or not. That's... The, no. Um... Anyway, I think the bottom line is, is now we know what kind of things Lewis thinks are funny, and I think he's pretty much fair game to all of us. <laughs> we have made our way through the Bible. We have hit 1 John, which means all we have left is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude and Revelation, right? So, let's look at 1st John. 1st John is a unique letter. It joins the epistle of Hebrews in this regard. 1 John is unique. If we look at it, it doesn't say who it's from. You know, all those letters of Paul we've read, the letters of Peter, the letter of James, you know, they, they all say, you know, Paul, an apostle, or Peter, ba 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 ba. 1 John, 
doesn't tell us who he is, who's writing it. Not only do we not know who it's from by reading the letter, but by reading the letter we don't see who it's to. It's not addressed to the church at Galatia. It's not addressed to the church at Ephesus. It's not addressed to Philemon. It's not addressed to the Philippian church or the Thessalonican church or the Roman church or the Corinthian church or where we see, or even as Peter did, to, the, to, to those saints dispersed among the... the no, nah, we don't have that either. So if we don't have from the letter itself who it's from, and we don't have from the letter itself who it's to, why do we call it 1 John? Okay, I'll tell you. First of all, because we go to our history books on our history shelf, and we read what church history has to say about the letter itself. We can read from Polycarp, who was writing about ten years after this letter. And Polycarp, uh, in his letter to the Philippian church, makes very clear reference to a portion of this. Polycarp, we know, was actually an acquaintance of the Apostle John. Uh, uh, Polycarp uh, was, was one of John's students. And so Polycarp himself gives us uh, uh, some pretty good reference to what it is. But not just Polycarp. If we go to the Muratorian canon, um, that's a document which you all will know all about once we do church history literacy, which was written around 170 A.D. And what it is, is it's an, uh, we only have the fr a fragment of the document. We don't have the whole document. But this is a fragment that lists the books that this uh, church was considering authoritative or part of the, the canon or the New Testament as we call it now. And in the process of that, it writes about John the Apostle. It says, the fourth gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel is that of John, one of the disciples. When his fellow disciples and bishops entreated or pleaded with him, he said, well, you fast with me and we'll figure out what I ought to do. On the third night... Andrew, who's another one of the apostles, had it revealed to him that John should narrate all the things as, as he could remember them about Jesus. And uh, uh, so he did. And there are different points taught in different books of the Gospels, but they're all the same faith of believers because they're all written under one imperial spirit concerning the Lord's nativity, His passion, His resurrection, His conversations with His disciples, and His twofold advent. The first, in humiliation and rejection, which is past, and the second, in the glory of royal power, which is yet in the future. Now, what marvel it is then that John brings forward these things so constantly in his epistles also, saying in his own person, quote, what we have seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, and with our hands have handled, that we have written. Which is what John 1, 1, 1 John 1, 1 says. Um, so we have from about 170 A.D. the Muratorian fragment, or the Muratorian canon, also quoting it, claiming it was from the Apostle John, and explaining why it is John wrote it. Um, there are lots of other references as well, but it's pretty standardly accepted that it was written by John. Remember, the Gospel of John itself, he doesn't clearly say he wrote. Yet it's apparent from a study, and you can go back and read our John lessons to see that. So why do we call it 1 John? Um, history is one. Second reason, um, whoever wrote it was claiming to be an eyewitness. 
Because of the language we just heard quoted from the first verse. Someone who saw Jesus. Someone who heard Jesus. Someone who felt and touched Jesus. So we have some internal indications that it's from an eyewitness. And certainly it's written with a very apostolic, authoritative voice. I mean, it's not written like some schmuck on the side of the road was just sort of writing some extra drivel and and somehow it miraculously made it into the Bible. Um, It's clearly written by a person with authority who's speaking about what he has seen and what he has heard. So um, um, we call it 1 John because history, because of an eyewitness. But there's a third reason that we call it 1 John, and that is it's like a matched set of candlesticks to the Gospel of John. The language itself is a very good match. The syntax, the vocabulary, the style, it's clearly written by whoever wrote the Gospel of John. Um, uh, You can just take a brief look at it and you'll see the Gospel of John starts out with, in the beginning was the Word. Remember that? 1 John starts out with, that which was from the beginning. And then he'll talk in a little bit about the word of life. So he uses stuff like that. There's a reference clearly, in my opinion, to the Nicodemus story out of John chapter 3. And some of the same language mirrored in this epistle. So there are a number of reasons we call it 1 John. And and it is reliable that John the Apostle, who was the last living apostle, is the one who wrote it. Now, who did he write it to? Well, let's pull up our map of Asia Minor. This is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Istanbul is up here at that opening of the Black Sea. Um, uh, This would be Greece over in this area. Down here is Israel and down here is Egypt. But this is, uh, uh, this is, there's Ephesus and Troas. These are the churches, uh, the seven churches that John will write the Revelation to. And this is Asia Minor. This is the general vicinity where John had his ministry over the last 30 years of his life. Um, We base this not only on biblical evidence, but also the external evidence is pretty strong. The historical evidence is pretty strong. It it comes into account when we consider when John wrote it. John wrote it probably in the 90s. So this is 60 years after the death of Christ. Remember, Jesus Jesus said, and John recorded it in John's Gospel that John would be the last apostle to die. And when John recorded it, John went out of his way to say, you know, Jesus did not mean I would never die. He just meant I'd be the last one to die. Because I'm sure at this point, John lived to probably about 95 or 100 years old. And he's writing late in his life. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who thought, Shazam, he ain't never going to die. Um, And he wanted people to know, it's not that I'm never going to die, it's just Jesus had said way back then, I'd be the last one to die. In 70 AD, Titus, the Roman emperor, conquered Jerusalem. And when Titus conquered Jerusalem, we'll deal with this more in church history literacy, but when Titus conquered Jerusalem, the Jews dispersed. Okay? Now, who who, who, the Christians in Jerusalem at the time, the church, they were mostly Jews, right? They weren't able to say, hey, Titus, I know you're wiping out all the Jews, but we're Christian Jews, so would you not wipe us out when you wipe everyone else out here? So the church dispersed before Titus conquered Jerusalem. The church leadership and church authority. And and John, history teaches us, and and it's pretty solid history. Uh, John, Andrew, 
who the Muratorian fragment said to John, you ought to write it, uh, Philip, these guys all went over to Asia Minor and Ephesus and the surrounding towns kind of became the center for the church toward the last of the apostolic age. Peter's dead, Paul's dead, but those that were remaining seemed to be working out of Ephesus and in this area. So <clears throat> that's when John wrote it in the 90s. Why did he write it? Um, uh, well, the Muratorian canon says that the church said to him, Hey, you know, you're getting up there. Why don't you write your memories of Jesus? And not only your memories of Jesus, but would you write for us some references, some, some instructions, some, some uh, teaching, so that we've got it. And so that's what John did, and that's his gospel, and those are these epistles. So John writes it. Um, he writes it because the congregations requested it. He writes it to attack early heresies. Okay, let's look at them. Two heresies in particular that John attacks here. Uh, the first heresy is what uh, would be called, uh, if you were in seminary, antinomianism. Okay. That's a $25 word um, uh, that shows that you've learned what it means and maybe you have a little Greek training because it comes from Greek. Um, uh, you'll hear it uh, uh, frequently, but it doesn't always click in your head because it's not something we typically use. If you want to make it part of your vocabulary so you use it all the time, let me tell you how to use it correctly. It means someone who's against the law, basically. Someone who, anti means against. Nomos is the Greek word for law, antinomian. Someone who thinks that law is irrelevant, morality is irrelevant. So if, for example, you are a police officer and you pull some guy over for speeding, you can walk up to him and say, are you just some antinomian or did you not know how fast you were speeding? See, that would be a good way to use it in everyday vocabulary. <clears throat> if you're not a police officer and you're just walking down the street and you see someone jaywalking, you could call out, hey, antinomian, you're jaywalking, citizen's arrest. Okay? Same type deal. That would be a correct usage. Now, if you want to use it in church circles, if you find someone who says, hey, anything goes, yeehaw, doesn't matter what I do, I'm forgiven. Morality is irrelevant. I can be a lawbreaker. Okay? You can say, I detect a spirit of antinomianism in you. That would be a proper use. What John is doing here in the epistle is he is writing in part against the heresy that says, doesn't matter what we do. Doesn't matter what we do. Without, we're forgiven. Either that, or there was another philosophical approach that says it doesn't matter what we do. And that was based on the idea that it is God's spirit within us that is holy and good. My body is evil. So it doesn't matter what my body does. I can go fornicate all I want to because in my heart, in my spirit, I deplore fornication. See? That kind of goofball heresy was floating around. That's what, uh, in part, John writes to address. But he also writes to address a second heresy called Corinthianism, or Corinthianism, if you want to do it with the hard C. Um, Corinthus, or Corinthus, was a fella. He didn't have anything to do with the town of Corinth. Okay? He was in Asia Minor. 
And he was a philosopher who was a Greek philosopher who came to Christianity and tried to mesh the two together. But he had a really goofball view of Christianity. I couldn't figure out goofball, so I just sort of threw that up there. I don't know what it is, but it's goofy, okay? Because this is Corinthianism. Corinthianism is this. Bodies and physical matter are evil. It was a kind of Gnosticism, okay? Bodies and physical matter are evil. What's inside your spirit, that is good. All right, so how do we explain Jesus Christ? Here's how Serenthus did it, or Corinthus did it. He said, well, there was a man named Jesus who was born of Mary and Joseph. There was nothing particularly special about him. And he lived, and, and, uh, and then finally, when he was about 30, he goes to get baptized by John the Baptist. And when he's getting baptized by John the Baptist, the Spirit of God descends as if a dove. And that's when Jesus became Jesus Christ. See, till that he's just some fella named Jesus. But that's when he became Christ. Because the body, the Jesus guy, he was nothing special. All, all physical stuff's evil. But it's the Christ, the spirit within him that was really special. And that was what was divine. And that's what had God's touch. And then <clears throat> you get toward the end of his life and he's about to go get crucified on Calvary. The Spirit then left Jesus, okay? Let Jesus go get killed while the Spirit was on a hillside watching it with interest. So that's what Serenthus was teaching, Corinthus, Corinthianism, Serenthianism, excuse me. Now, what did that mean? That meant that your spirit's real good, but again, it went back to almost to the antinomian heresy, the law-breaking heresy. What you do with your body is really kind of irrelevant. All that God's interested in is that spiritual part inside. So you can either do anything you want, or another response would be to deny your body, since your body's evil. You should deny your body. You, you know, don't have any fun. Don't eat anything except liver and onions. Um, don't, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, everyone should be celibate. Um, uh, uh, you know, no fun at all. And those were the two extremes that came out of that philosophy. John writes to address those. So how does he do it? His text is what I would call a symphony, not an outline. I haven't given you an outline of the book because while people outline books and people outline 1 John, to me it's just a goofy outline. I don't see that he wrote in any outline form. He's got certain themes, like a, a symphony has a theme, and he repeats the themes over and over and over. And you just want to get frustrated, you try and outline it like a 21st century high school English student's paper. He didn't write it that way. He wrote it built around, it's a flower arrangement. Okay, it's not a, 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 a uniform outline progressive train of thought. It's got themes of fellowship, and they'll be here, and then they'll disappear, and then they'll come out again, and then they'll come out again. He's got themes of light, and he'll talk about it here, and then he'll leave it alone. Then he'll talk about it again, and then he'll talk about it. He's got themes of love that just come out, you know, just bubbling everywhere. It's a symphony of themes that are put together. It's not a real clear, coherent outline. It does start much like the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John starts in the beginning, the epistle, that which was from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The epistle of John tells us 
concerning the word of life. And then John goes the next step and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've seen with our eyes. Okay? Now he's attaching, he's attacking this heresy that Jesus was just some, or Christ was some ethereal spirit. The word of life, Christ, Jesus, God, Christ, Christ, the word of life is something, he says, I physically saw with my eyes. <clears throat> was not some invisible spirit that came upon Jesus and then left Jesus. Christ was something I saw. More than saw, Christ is something I heard with my ears. And Christ is something I touched with my hands. Christ is not just some yeehaw spirit from the mystic cosmic universe creator that indwelt a man for a while. Christ was real that I could see, that I could hear, and that I could touch. That's the word of life. And that's Jesus. And because of Jesus, and because of who Jesus is, we can have fellowship with each other. He's the reason we all have fellowship. Fellowship. Greek word, koinonia. Fellowship. What does it mean? It means a commonness. It's something we have in common. It's something we share. I like to think of it as the hub of a wheel. That all of the spokes... You know, which spoke owns the hub? Is it that one? Or is it that one? Maybe it's this one. Well, it's all of them. It's the hub that they all hold in common. That holds them together. It's the hub that they share. And John says, because Jesus Christ is real. He was a real person. He was a real human being. He really existed. He really walked. And when he walked, there were feet print left. Because he was real. Because of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did, we have something that we fellowship or we have in common or we share. And when I say we, because of Jesus, I mean Christians have fellowship with God and Jesus. The reason we can have something in common with our God is because Jesus Christ was real. Without Jesus Christ, we have nothing in common with our God anymore. But because of who Jesus Christ is, we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with each other. The reason uh, 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 Perry is my Christian brother is because of Jesus Christ. You take Jesus out of the equation, and I'd still love Perry, he's a nice guy. But we would not be related. The reason Mike Riddle is my Christian brother is because of Jesus Christ. You take Jesus out of the equation, I'd still like him. He's a good lawyer. He's a nice guy. He's got a dandy wife. So do you, Perry. In fact, both of those guys married up. I have reason to believe both of their wives don't see too well. But, um, of course, Michelle's downright blind. Um, the... Uh, 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 the, the point of it is, what, the reason we're family, the reason we share, the reason we hold in common is because of Jesus Christ. That's the reason. Now, why does it take Jesus? 
Why can't we just all be family anyway? Why can't I just be tight with God without Jesus? Why can't God and I just fellowship and go happily along hand in hand through my life? Well, the reason why is because God is pure, 100% light. Absolute pure light. And if you think about pure light, darkness is nowhere present. You cannot have darkness in light. And John says, darkness can't fellowship with God in His light. And He's 100% pure light. Oh, I could be the brightest bulb in the group. But if I've got even 1% of darkness in me, I have no fellowship with 100% pure light. Something's got to happen. Something's got to happen. Now, Paul, uh, John says, I'm not saying you've got to be perfect as a human to be in fellowship with God. This is not about only people God's going to you know, walk with or people who are perfect. He says, in fact, if you say you're perfect, and that's why you're fellowshipping with God, you're lying right now. So you ain't perfect. So he says, it's not perfectionism I'm talking about. He says, it's like this. God is 100% pure light, okay? If you want to walk with God, you live your life oriented around the truth that God is light. Now this is for people in Christ to understand. Christ takes away the darkness. But when we continue to sin, that's not a cool thing. And what John is saying is, you, you live your life trying not to. You need to live your life putting your effort out there for God. You need to live your life trying, oriented to the fact that He's 100% pure light. And so when you sin, you confess your sin. And you walk in the forgiveness that you have. That's the Christian walk. That's what the Christian does. And so we have an advocate with the Father. And that's going to be Jesus. And when we have Jesus as our advocate, we not only have Him arguing our case or, or satisfying God there, but He's also our propitiation. It's a big word. We don't use that one much. It means He paid our price. He's our payment. He paid the price for our sin. So the guy who's, who's setting our case before God that allows us to walk with God in His light, even though we have darkness in us, is the guy who took away the darkness and paid the price for the darkness. And that's what we have in Jesus. Fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. And John sets it out there. It says, in Jesus, we know God. Know God in an intimate fashion. Remember the Greek word for know? It's got two ideas here. I refuse to give the longhorns. They almost chumped it yesterday. Um, you got two ideas here with knowing. First in the word is the intimacy associated with it. To know God is not to be intellectually aware of Him, but to have an intimate binding relationship with Him. And second, the, the whole Serenthus idea, this whole Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And these were guys who said, oh, you got your ordinary Christians walking around, but we really know God. We know the secrets of God. We know the mysteries of God. Come to me and let me teach you some mysteries. Come to me and let me teach you some things most people don't know. 
It's the higher level of truth. It's really spiritual. You come, let me teach it to you. And this was called, we have real knowledge. And John's saying, hogwash. None of that. You really want to know God, know Jesus. The flesh and blood Jesus. Because that is God. He is God. Now, how do you know if you know God? I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who says, you know, sometimes you look at your life and you just wonder, am I really there? Am I, am I really God's? Because I, I do so many things I wish I didn't do. Well, John's got an answer. He says, look at the way you live your life because it shows your faith. Not perfectly, but look at the effort. Look at what you're trying to do. Look at that it does bother you when you're not perfect and when you make mistakes. He says the way you live your life, and he doesn't use the word thermometer. I'm borrowing it because I don't think he had one. But I will tell you this. You know it's hot outside when the mercury goes up. You know it's cold outside when the mercury goes down. Now is the mercury going up making it hot outside? No. But it's telling you it's hot outside. Is the mercury going down? Oh, our mercury's dropping. Pretty soon it's going to get cold. Man, we've got the thermometer that runs the climate for the world. No. The thermometer is going down because it's getting cold. It doesn't make it cold. It's a result. That's the way our lives are. Your life is changing. That's not what makes you God's. But that's what shows you you are God's because it's God who's making your life change. He says not only that. He says, look at the way you love each other and the way you love God. That's another thing that shows you are God's. You don't have to worry that you're not part of that in group of Serenthus. You don't have to worry that you're not part of his cult with the secret knowledge. You don't have to worry that you're not part of the super spiritual group over there because you belong to God. And you can see that by the fact that you love as God loves. Not perfectly, but that's what you want to do. You live the way God lives. Not perfectly, but that's what you want to do. And that's what you're trying to do. And that shows you your faith. Then he says, now, little children. And I love it. I mean, John's like, he's pushing 95, okay? To him, they're all little children. So he uses this word, little children, to reference the whole group. Okay? That's the whole crowd. Little children, he says, your sins have been forgiven on account of the name of Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done. Your sins are forgiven. And when he says little children, he's talking to all of us. He's talking to those of us who are 45. He's talking to those like Lewis that are pushing 50. He's talking to all of us here. Oh, it's just getting warmed up, buddy. I got a year of this. You just wait till we start talking about the Antichrist. No, um, the John says, this is not anything new. Oh, in a way it's new. It's fresh every day, the forgiveness we have in Christ. But he says, your sins have been forgiven on behalf. And then John breaks it apart. And he talks about three different age groups. Okay? First age group, he talks about fathers. And by that, he probably means people who are older, not as much in age as much as in faith. 
And he says, to you who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, you know God intimately, and you understand God is eternal. And, and, and John applauds the older in the faith because of that. Then John says, now there's a group of you that are young men, he calls them, who are younger in the faith. And to those, he says, you've overcome the evil one. You are saved in the Lord. You are, have overcome the evil one with the word of God, but be careful how you're living. Because when you're in that younger stage of your faith, kind of that intermediate stage, he says, you, you got problems sometimes loving the world. The lusts of the world and the lusts of the flesh, the things you really want. You're at that age in your walk with the Lord where you love the Lord and you want the Lord, but you sure do like a lot of things that aren't necessarily of the Lord. And, and, and pride and boastings, you know, it just feels really good to be built up personally. And he says, you really need to be careful because that's as you grow in your faith. That's not really what should be mattering to you. And then he says, now children, which is kids of all age. This is a different Greek word than when he said little children earlier. That's why the NIV will translate one little children so that you know it's applying for John to everybody. But then he just says, kids in the faith, you've just come to the Lord. This is something new for you. He says, look, antichrists, plural, have already come. And more will come. Anybody who denies that Jesus is God and God's Son and that Jesus Christ was real and the ramifications of that, they're against Christ. Now there's going to be an antichrist that beats all antichrists coming one day. But John says, please understand the spirit of antichrist is already with us. There are people denying the reality of God all the time. And I think if John were speaking to our group, he'd say it a little differently because we're in a different culture. But he'd still say, if you're young in your faith, if you've just met God in the last couple of years, know there are lots of people and lots of things that will try and take priority in your life over God. There are lots of things that you're going to think are more important to you than Jesus. You may not even think it. It may just be how you live. And know that that's against Jesus. That is not the way to live and that's not the way to be. So John says what we really need to do is abide in Christ and God the way the chicken has her little brood under her wings. We're not going to make it through this lesson. Um, so, actually, we're close. I'm not going to tell that story. We're going to zip. So, abide in God. Abide in Christ, he says. Live your lives that show God, that show His love and His truth to this world. That's the way we need to be. We need to abide in Christ. Avoid sin and Satan's work. Why? It's serious stuff. Sin is what caused the death of our Lord. And he says, if your mind, if you know in your mind that you have faith in Jesus, it takes care of your heart. Your faith is what you know. It's not what you feel. I had a professor one time, and, and a student asked him, Dr. Floyd, how do you feel about your salvation? And I thought he was like going to spit. You know, he said, how do, how do I feel? How do I feel about my salvation? How do I feel about my salvation? You know, I, 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 uh, I really try not to focus on how I feel about my salvation. Because I find my feelings change day by day. I find my feelings affected by what I'm eating, what I'm eating. 
I find my feelings affected by what I'm doing, how people are treating me, what sin I've been trapped in. He says, don't ask me how I feel about my salvation. Ask me what I think about my salvation. Because, and he turned us to this passage. John said, because we know Jesus, we have an answer when our hearts condemn us. When our heart says, oh, God doesn't love me. Oh, God has abandoned me. Oh, God has forsaken me. Our minds can trump our hearts and say, wrong! He has not abandoned us. He died on Calvary. Once for all. There is no abandonment. Psalm 43 is a wonderful psalm that Dr. Floyd then told us to read. And he turned to it. And I'm, I may get us out at four after, but humor me. Actually, it starts with Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for you. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears are my food night and day. These, you know, men are saying to me, where's your God? Those are the first three verses. My life's really gone into the sewer right now. And here's his answer. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. His brain engages. I remember how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. I remember singing worship to my Lord. With shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng, I can remember putting God in worship before me. But then the psalmist, that doesn't fix it. His heart's still down. He says, so why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. But my soul's still downcast within me. I got faith. I know it's going to be all right. I know it's, I'm going to praise God again. But right now, man, I'm really down in the dumps. And he goes back through the whole thing again. But he says, as he thinks about it, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disturbed? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him. And then Psalm 43, which is the tail end of 42. He's still got the same problems. But he ends it with the same rejoin. Why? Because we can look at the cross of Jesus and when our hearts condemn us, we can say, I don't feel right now my salvation and my God. But I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that He's able to keep that I've committed to Him against that day. And that's the answer. We love not because we're so good. We love because He loved us first. And we see it and we know it. And this is what it means to be born again. We are born into Him. And when we're born again, we're born again. And no one takes that from us. And it doesn't matter if we feel it or not. You know, I don't feel like I've been born the first time. Okay. Well, I have. I may not feel like I've been reborn, but I have. I know I have. And it's real. It's not an apparition. Points for home. Jesus is real. And our faith is real. Don't feel it. Don't like it. Don't want it. But it's real. And we got it. And hold on to it with every breath you've got. Let your mind reassure your heart. Love each other. Don't let pettiness get in the way. 
oh, I agree, I should really dislike Lewis now. <laughs> love each other. There's nothing more important than the way we love each other. Everything else is small. And let's love holiness. Pray with me, please. God, thank you so much for the fun we can have in you. I thank you for dear friends like Lewis and so many others that, that in this class hold me up and, and love and support. And it is my prayer, Lord, that through uh, the teaching, uh, your word uh, will, will pierce into people's hearts and needs. There, there are hundreds of different needs in this room, Father, but your Holy Spirit alone would be able to take even what I say and minister to people. And that is my prayer as people go out that, that Satan will be gone from their, their walk today, that they'll be gone from their lives, that they will walk in love and forgiveness and holiness and, and not keep in score with each other and not keep in score with, with uh, you or anybody else, just loving, Father, by your Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus we pray, amen.